When I was in elementary school, I remember my best friend at the time telling me about AOL Instant Messenger. Suddenly, I was having one conversation in school with my friends and then another when I got home. Most of these conversations were ones with people that I knew IRL or in real life. But some of them were with relative strangers, friends of friends I had never met in person. I made real connections with these people. Not only that, but the profile features and the changes that I made on them from day to day were a form of self-expression. Then came Zynga, MySpace, and Facebook, and all the social networks that followed. But while I had these experiences with my peers, these weren't necessarily things that I could talk to my parents about. In other words, I was quietly having formative experiences in the digital world absent the input of the people who care about me the most. Though I was growing up in a time in which these technologies were made available, online relationships and their effect on kids and teens have only become more pronounced today. On today's episode of DigEthics, we'll be exploring these challenges and more through an interview with Dr. Loretta Brady. Hello, fellow DigEthicists. My name is Seth Viegas. Welcome back to the DigEthics podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of talking about the challenges of parenting in the digital age with Dr. Loretta Brady. Dr. Brady has a PhD in clinical psychology from Fordham University and currently works as a professor of psychology at St. Anselm College. She has written a forthcoming book on the topic called Technology Touchpoints, Parenting in the Digital Dystopia. Now, I am not a parent, but I was initially contacted by Dr. Brady when she had come across the podcast and I had a chance to talk with her a little bit about my own experience with technology. As a researcher, I thought I would be talking about the things I had been doing but instead we ended up talking a lot about life and how how we had gotten here. Some of that conversation even ended up in the book. The truth is, sometimes we get so wrapped up in the research that we forget about the foundational experiences that made us who we are today. And it's specifically those pivotal moments, or touch points, as they are called in the Brazelton Touchpoint Framework, that impact us for the rest of our lives. So the achievement of the book is to take something like Dr. Terry Brazelton's framework for a child's psychology and to apply it to our experiences with technology. For me personally, this made a lot of sense. I've always been interested in technology, which is why I spend so much time thinking about it and studying it. While it may be easy to think about technology as something that isolates us, it is also the case that we turn to technology when we feel isolated. I remember that I made really good friends online playing games, people that I could turn to for my personal problems. In fact, it seemed better to talk to people online about things I was embarrassed about, especially when it came to things like romance and all the awkwardness that comes from puberty. In the midst of the COVID lockdowns, I turned to World of Warcraft, an MMORPG that depends on your ability to make friends and connections to overcome common challenges. I made real friends, and it was great to have people who were expecting me to be online. But at the same time, I put less effort into my body, and social isolation, especially in the midst of the lockdowns, was still pretty high. It became really hard to see people in person. I was living on my own, my family members all the way on the other coast in California, I even had to miss Christmas because of the COVID restrictions at my school and the length of quarantine were just not conducive to travel and work. Remote work and remote classes are now a thing precisely because of what technology has made possible. And so while I haven't been a parent myself, I do hope to become one one day. The kinds of things that I went through might be the sort of stuff that my own kids go through one day. But even more that, I know firsthand just how lost my parents felt much of the time. The online world was a new one that seemed to give me great pleasure, but was completely unknown. So how do we navigate these new frontiers? If we do not know just what technology is doing to us, how do we attempt to guide children who know even less than we do? So as we begin this conversation, I hope that you, just as Dr. Brady asked, will think about your own technology story and about how it has formed you. And if you do feel so inclined to share, it'd be great to hear from you. You can send us a message 
by email, digethics at mindingculture.org, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at digethics and on Instagram at digethicsfuture. The intro and outro music Dreams was composed by Benjamin Tissett and is available through bensound.com. Now I am pleased to present you with my conversation with Dr. Loretta Brady. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Loretta Brady. It'd be it'd be great to first hear a little bit about who you are and your background. Great. Well, as you mentioned, my name is Loretta Brady. I'm a clinical psychologist and a professor of psychology. I teach at St. Anthem College, where I've been for the entirety of my career, 2004. And I'm also a licensed uh, psychologist here in the state of New Hampshire, where I have taken that license has uh, gone from serving populations highly impacted by trauma to now developing organizational capacity to um, either support vulnerable workforces or to do better by their inclusion, diversity, and equity efforts. And I'm a mom, mom of many. I have five children, and my husband and I have been parents since 2006, which, um, as I mentioned in the book, Technology Text Points, corresponds to the um, onset of Facebook. Yeah, and thank you so much for mentioning that, in part because the, the book is our kind of occasion for the interview. Could you give us just a brief description of it and what led you to write it? Yeah, so the book is Technology Touchpoint Parenting in the Digital Dystopia. I wrote it for a lot of different reasons. I have children who are now in their mid-teens through um, between years. And I was noticing in my own household kind of dramatic differences in the interests, the play styles, the academic inclinations that my children had, even just being a few years apart in age, which I attributed in part to differences in technology access and use. My family, uh, my partner um, works in technology and always has, so we tend to be an early adopter family. So, you know, we would sort of onboard technology and devices and different apps before they even were reported on in different presses. So it wouldn't be unusual for us to have pretty decent familiarity with something prior to it hitting a more mainstream audience. Does that mean like you had like an early iPhone or, or kind of what's an example of one of those things? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I would say (laughs) there was some sort of music listening device. It started with a Z. I can't remember what it was anymore. But we had that that was the predecessor to the iPod. We had an early iPod. And then very quickly, as soon as the iPhones were available, we had one of those in our our household. And in fact, for me, as a working mother on the tenure track, who was very involved in community and and, um, research projects with my local community, it became um, an essential tool, you know, like this was how I was managing my life between calendars and accessing files and coordinating, you know, child care arrangements and documenting important information about my, you know, well baby visits. All of that was because I had this pocket computer, right? Yeah, it's, but it's in so- addition to our own family life, we also I was also writing grants and doing research on early childhood development and technology. And um, at a at a certain point in the mid-2010s, I would say, there was a, a recognition that the digital divide was a concern, that some families were having access 
to digital technology that other families might not have mm. access to. And in the service of equity, which is one of the areas that my work contributes to, I was starting to put together projects that were seeking to try and mediate that challenge by working with parents of young children in different science museum contexts to try and introduce pro-social and pro-developmental ways of utilizing this new emerging technology with young children. So those were the really two professional and personal impetus that resulted in this book. Um, those were sort of the earlier seeds and then other directions of my work and, and other implications in my family life and personal life contributed to the story that we have today. Yeah, and thank you so much for giving me a chance to actually sit down and, and read the book. I think from having gone through it personally, I can really see those two sort of sides. So there's the the psychologist researcher side, but also the the parent side. It, the book really, I think, goes a lot into how you've been affected by the kinds of changes that are going on and have had concerns about the sorts of things that you're seeing. And even in what you just said of noticing the differences between your your children, right, who are only a year or two apart in the kinds of technologies they have around and how that's affecting them. It, it must be a little surreal in a sense. And e even thinking about it in your example of the, I think that I'm not, I can't even remember what the, the predecessor iPod was, if it was like a Zoom or something else. But, <laughs> yes, yes, it was but, that. It was the Zoom thing. <laughs> yeah. But I, I even thinking about it for myself of, of having lived through all of those changes that now it doesn't seem like a big deal, but at the time it was such a radical departure. Yeah. I, I think I, that's one of the things I appreciate of just like being shown that again of like, oh, wow, that is such a, it's such a strange thing that we kind of lived through and for your kids to be living through that must be strange as well. And I think every generation of parents can reflect on how they consumed media and recognize that it's different than how their children are consuming media. But I think to your point, innovation cycles are so quick and market cycles are so fast that we do lose sight of how rapidly media consumption and creation has shifted in not even a lifetime, right? Just in an mm -hmm. adult lifetime. <laughs> it was it was important to me to articulate and to use those anchor points that I could kind of remember and have clarity around for myself and my family. But then to use those as kind of rabbit hole openings, right, to then go back into, well, what was going on economically, sociologically that, you know, contributed to these things being picked up the way that they were? And then what were the implications of these shifts for children of different ages or for family life or, as some of the book goes into in the later section, the economic implications? Okay, so the book is titled Technology Touchpoints. Would you mind kind of briefly explaining what a touchpoint is? So I borrowed the frame of touchpoint directly from the Brazelton Touchpoint Center. And I think there are a lot of lowercase t touchpoint mm -hmm. meanings. Essentially, you know, a touchpoint in a sales pipeline could be the moment that you are connecting with a potential customer and the cultivation work that you do in that relationship. But in the Brazelton Touchpoint Center framework, which is out of Boston Children's Hospital and from the work of T. Barry Brazelton, who is a pediatrician, it refers to these developmental milestones where a child's capacity in some area of development is going to begin accelerating. 
but as a result, the um, the performance, if you will, of that child in other more established areas of their development will regress um, as oh, really? a cost of that. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> as a cost of that accelerating development. And so the touch point is the parental and child relationship in those moments where you know, that can be a disorienting experience for a child, of course, but it can also be one that's disorienting for a parent. And so what Brazelton and others who've worked with him understood was that if you could support a family, particularly in anticipating and and normalizing that those experiences do happen, um, and also help them recognize when the developmentally likely times are when those things occur, that you could support and kind of buffer that family system from some of the stress and strain associated with that developmental, you know, achievement, really, even though it's a disruption. So that's how I came into this work. I was really thinking about, again, drawing from some of that work, writing grants to support young children and their families' use of technology. I began to appreciate that, you know, what we would want a family system to be able to achieve with a preschooler was very different than what we would want with a, you know, late elementary school child or a early high school student. And so I really began to consider, you know, what are the developmental milestones that humans navigate and how do they navigate those with and through technology and what implications might that have for technology? So I sort of took that Brazelton Center framework, but really thought about the human lifespan in its entirety rather than just early childhood development here and considered, all right, so where is the, where's the technology touch point in this story? And then also in using that as a frame to develop the narrative of the story, began to understand and uncover for myself what the social technology touch points have been that there are specific eras in, you know, the American economic cycle and in some of our global relations that have directly contributed to the technology landscape that we have today. That's great. So you, you took a this theory about touch points, like particular point, or like moments in childhood and kind of applying the technological aspect to it. And I think that's a pretty novel thing, especially because that kind of feeling of disorientation is something I think happens a lot with technology. And I think as we'll kind of get into, you name a bunch of really specific sorts of challenges and problems that that come with it. And one of the ones that you already mentioned a little bit is the kind of the social technology, like social aspects of technology. I guess I was wondering how how do you think that, say, social media and other thing kind of plays into parenting, especially because, say, when I was growing up, Facebook wasn't even a thing until, I don't know, until I was like 13 or something like that. They, they had only just opened it up. So the, the thought of having that sort of thing earlier in life is kind of strange to even think about to me personally. I'm kind of wondering what your research has shown so far. I've been trained in the Brazelton Touchpoint work. So I was really confident in thinking about developmental time points where humans just as a species might be more primed or less primed for certain inputs, including social media. But I was really struck as I started to use that as a metaphorical framework for the book, the ways in which it also is true for technology innovation. There are, you know, we're 
we're leaps ahead of our own ability to reflect and process and make meaning of the technology that we create and use. The, the technology innovation is leaps ahead of where we are. So when it comes to, you know, things like social media and the impacts there, my way into this work for the book was really to consider its impact on identity. Because, you know, as a psychologist, and especially as a psychologist who works with highly traumatized populations and who works to support organizations that are trying to do better by their inclusion, equity, and diversity work, identity is a real key feature of both trauma recovery as well as inclusion in an organization. Being able to make space for identities, to respect identities, to make room for the ways in which identity shifts through relationships. Those are, you know, kind of the tools that psychologists bring to the table when they work with individuals or groups is understanding the power of identity and then helping kind of till the soil for identity to flourish in productive ways. And I think while Facebook may not have been open and available until you were an early teenager, parents have always looked outside of their circle for wisdom, whether that was you know, in a village and, and other moms and grandmothers sharing knowledge and, and modeling certain expectations, certain practices, or whether it was Ladies Home Journal and, you know, certain articles about manners and expectations. And we don't always get messages that are the healthiest for humans or for society, but those right. messages have always been available. And I think Facebook, to some extent, is a vehicle of that, you know, similar to the Village Mamas, similar to Ladies Home Journal. It's a way in which the cultural norms and expectations of a group are transmitted. And in one regard, that's pretty straightforward. However, we understand that they're not doing that just to translate information in the same way that Ladies Home Journal wasn't doing it to transmit information. They were collecting advertising dollars and they were trying to reach a certain market and you know the degree to which they reached that market was the degree to which they were successful similarly with facebook that's been as an example of social media platform obviously many others but um, we now understand that it wasn't just bringing sort of our social circles collective wisdom to our eyes it was also greatly shaping the kind of information that we would see kind of behind the scenes through its algorithmic practices yeah, and, and that definitely speaks a lot to not just Facebook, but kind of all the different kinds of platforms we have now. I think it's actually very interesting the sorts of communities that will pop up in these different spaces. Like the kinds of communities you have on Twitter are very different than the ones you have on Facebook. Whereas I think Facebook has yeah. been a real place for the flourishing of these sorts of groups, right? And and if if you think about like mom groups on Facebook uh, spreading information about different sorts of things or talking about debating right. things, I'm sure that was very contentious, say, during COVID and whatnot, especially over schools and things like that. And it's an interesting place for both the transmission of information, as you're saying, but also for even new kinds of conflicts to to come up over what the the best ideas are, which I think in our kind of digital oh. landscape is even more contentious than it's been in kind of past generations. And I think for me in working through this book, it was a recognition and an appreciation that when we can predict 
based on our knowledge of developmental frameworks, you know, when and who is most likely to be looking at these platforms for support, for information, mm -hmm. for community, for identity affirmation, then we are more able to either as parents make decisions to potentially buffer our children from, you know, certain impacts or, and I kind of make this point further into the story, really demand more of our legislators and the regulatory authority that they could exercise against some of these platforms and some of this technology innovation. Mm -hmm. So for you as a, as a parent, I think that much of the book also kind of talks about that. So there's the managing social media part of it, but there's also something you mentioned a lot is say unsupervised time with technology in the way in the, and that can be potentially harmful or out of somebody's control. I, I think uh, something that comes to mind is if I'm around my my cousin and we're we're at Christmas or something like that, it if a, if a child's being a little unruly, it can be it can be pretty easy to hand them the phone, right? And then just <laughs> tell them to go crazy because they're quiet for a while. But there's all these okay. kinds of weird trade-offs now of oh, like there's something that's kind of satisfying, but you don't want your child to be addicted to it. And then also, you're not always sure what they're looking at necessarily. Could you just talk about how what, what some of those challenges are and, and how you think we should deal with them? Yeah, I, I think for me, this comes up in the book. When I think about my own childhood, I lived for a number of years with grandparents and my grandparents differed in age. My grandfather was Great Depression era child, and my step grandmother was a boomer, early boomer. And so, you know, and then my childhood was, you know, mini series dramas of the 80s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so those are the sort of shared media experiences that we had when I was a, a pretty young child, elementary school age child. But they were shared, right? So, Yes, I watched Dynasty and there was, you know, feelings that my baby boomer era step-grandmother had about whether it was appropriate for us to sit down as a family and watch this show together. Mm -hmm. And my depression era grandfather, who was like, you know, we've lived through worse. I think we can handle this. Had a much more laissez-faire attitude about that exposure. So there were adults in the room with different opinions, with different perspectives who were mediating the media that I was experiencing. And I could then form my own opinions about what was happening on the screen. I could make my own meaning. And, you know, whether I did in that moment between, you know, seven, eight, and nine, or whether it was something I reflected on later, the sort of inputs were all available, right? When I hand my phone to my child and we're visiting relatives or it's the end of the day, they are just in the input is just there, right? Mm -hmm. There's not necessarily a mediated interpretation, debate, discussion, processing. There's really no co-processing that's occurring necessarily. Mm -hmm. The device doesn't require me to function and my child doesn't require me to make it function, especially at certain ages. And we're starting to see lots of evidence that those ages are much younger than even when my own children were in their mm. toddlerhoods and early elementary school years. Who we are is who we are a part of, right? So who we see we, ourselves as is in part a reflection of who we see ourselves as part of. So what groups are we part of? 
And that group identity is formed in part through shared experience. I comment in the book on, you know, what does that mean? What does it mean when our children have access to any media that they might wish to engage? And they do engage it. And then they have entire worlds that we don't participate in, that we don't have access to necessarily, right? We might choose to learn a certain game platform and, you know, follow along the levels that our children are mastering in a certain game world. We don't necessarily experience it the same way that they do, right? If I were to take a online platform like Roblox, for example, and, you know, I might be trying to keep up <laughs> intellectually with, you know, mm -hmm. which game are you playing in this platform and what's the experience that you're having there. But I am so novel and novice at this that I can't appreciate the chat that's happening on the side and the meaning that my children are able to draw and, and converse in. Um, and so my own mastery limits the way in which I can engage in that media with my children um, mm -hmm. and vice versa. Right. I, I do all sorts of things online that my children aren't involved in. And, you know, it lives in my mind in a way that isn't in theirs at all because it wasn't even a passively, you know, it wasn't like they were walking through the living room and they heard the evening news. Right. It's just, that I've encountered that they don't necessarily have any access to. And so I think that, you know, that means we are building generationally different identities and culturally different identities across groups and between groups. And I think that's true class-wise. I think that's true, you know, racially, ethnically, linguistically. We saw after the, in the lead up to the 2016 and then again in the 2020 election, we saw differences in, um, language news and in the ability to kind of catch and halt misinformation, right? We were kind of doing that between 2016 and 2020 with English language, but platforms like Facebook and others weren't necessarily doing that to the same degree for Spanish or for other languages, mm -hmm. which means, you know, those are implications there for sort of how families, how individuals, how children, how youth receive information about the world and then as a result how they view the world around them yeah you've definitely given us uh, a lot to chew on i think the the first part of what you mentioned is the kind of pro the co-processing that used to do say when you're watching tv which i think is a uh, interesting because that reminded me of times when i was watching movies with my dad for instance that maybe maybe i was a little too young to watch but it's different when your parent is there versus when you're more isolated with a technology. And I think as a parent can't really be sure what kind of experience your child might be having. In particular, what you mentioned about Roblox. Roblox, for those people who don't know, is kind of a, it's a whole ecosystem of games and other activities that are is basically only limited by what people can design, which makes it almost as almost as diverse as you can imagine in terms of the, the types of things that you can think about or see. And if you imagine someone who's really into that sort of environment, there's no telling what sort of th things they could find or look for. It's dizzying for me to think about because I remember other sorts of games that I used to play that had kind of sprawling environments like that. And it's, you know, <laughs> you're trying to keep up with that is almost like a full-time job, which I think for a kid is very easy because they're so interested in it. But 
as someone who has other things to do, it's probably much more difficult. Right. And I, you know, I don't, although this book is subtitled Parenting in the Digital Dystopia, it's not really an advice book, right? I think of this more as a question book. Mm -hmm. Um, If there's any advice that I give in this book, it's, you know, know your legislators and make demands of them because (laughs) we as individual parents are not going to win the battle. Even if we decide to swear off all technology adoption, that itself is not really going to win the battle. We need to demand more of our regulatory bodies. And the only way to do that is through our legislative process here in the United States. So I don't necessarily think there's any platform or any technology that is off limits for every child. I really believe that the key is is connection. And that's another thing that I blatantly borrow from the Brazelton Touchpoints framework. You know, any disruption in a child's development, it's not really about the disruption. It's about the repair. It's about how that family system reconnects. And so for a family that feels like it's struggling with technology, struggling whether or not to allow a child of a certain age to access a certain type of technology to the degree possible, I I always lean on the side of sure and mm-hmm. talk about it. Have them show you. Have them introduce you. Talk about the kinds of, you know, in your family life, you may have a different practice, but in my family life, we don't go to a gun range and shoot. So (laughs) if my child is very interested in first-person shooter games, then I'm going to have conversations with them about first-person shooter games and what is that like. And there's a lot of shootings in our world today. And what do you think about that? And are, does that frighten you? And how do you think we should try and prevent that? And, you know, what happens on screen and how is that different than what happens in real life? And how do you know the differences? And not to say that every game that my children encounter is preceded with these, you know, <laughs> 12 questions, but the ability and willingness and interest that a parent has to engage those discussions in the same way that, you know, children who have a fascination with fashion show games, which I have several of those children in my life, I have conversations with them about, you know, voting down someone's outfit in that game. <laughs> and what does that mean? And what's the difference between that and bullying? And, you know, how can you be a supportive participant and still have a competition-based game, right? I, we, I ruin games all the time for my children by <laughs> having these kinds of um, questions. and. You know, I I think that that's the very least we can do as parents. And I think just developing that appreciation as a parent, that it's more than just the platform or the game. It's more than just, oh, they can't put it down. They're addicted. It's it's not really any of that, right? That there's oftentimes a lot more that's happening with a given device and within a given child's mind as they engage their digital world. And our dismissiveness is really simply creating a barrier between ourselves and understanding our children better. Um, If we were less dismissive of that device and less dismissive of their fascination with it, there's a greater chance that we'll understand more about them as people. Play is learning for children of all ages. And our job as parents is to sort of appreciate the seriousness with which play happens, even when that play is happening in a digital space. I really appreciate what you said about trying to have a conversation about these things, even if it can seem a little bit awkward, right? Especially if the child thinks it's a disruption 
of what they're doing or they, they don't want to have to explain it. But I, I think the interest itself is powerful because navigating that space and the potential dangers that can come from it, you know, really is important. So I actually remember a time when I was playing a, a game called uh, Counter-Strike, which is a, a first-person shooter, um, may, maybe one of concern for, for you. And <laughs> I, I had an encounter with uh, someone, you know, I had met kind of playing the game and my my best friend at the time, we, we were both kind of active on the same uh, server, right? A kind of a place where players gather. And one of the people we had met was really interested in knowing where we lived, but we were both like, oh, okay, like this doesn't seem right, but I don't know why it's not right. Uh-huh. And we were able to kind of consult with each other and be like, okay, like we're definitely not going to give any specific information to this person, even though he was like an online friend. It was like, oh, but we don't know anything else about this person. So we don't want right. to give away that kind of sensitive information. And I think that there's lots of these diff- these kinds of decisions or awkward interactions where, uh, you, you know, you're having real social interactions with other people, right? Wh- whether that's through the kind of content they're producing or directly through a chat, as you mentioned, or through voice or all, all these other sorts of things. And I, I think one of the things that was tough for my parents in particular was I was having these really strong relationships with people I had ne- never met before to, to the point where, you know, you kind of felt very open with them in a way that I didn't feel with other people at the time. And I think as I've been able to sort of explain that more, and I think especially as a child, right, you can't necessarily explain everything that you're feeling or everything that's going on. I, I think that the conversation at least is a starting point for that having those sort of uh, difficult conversations to develop. I don't know if it's like a street smarts for the digital world or whatnot, but of just, you know, trying to maintain your privacy, but also trying to protect yourself from harmful experiences. One of the things you actually mentioned in the book is the that Momo meme, right? Which might get yeah. kids to harm themselves. And, and I just think about those sorts of things of, it's hard for me to even imagine someone would be willing to create something like that because it seems evil right? Like planting that idea in a child's head. But at the same time, like I would want to have a good enough relationship that I could build the resilience into my child such that they would know like, oh, like this is actually not something that I should be watching, or it is something I should be like consulting someone about. And and I think it's hard because you just don't know where that's that situation is going to come from exactly. And I learned a lot from my own children and appreciating that, you know, they are wiser than I give them credit for. And, you know, when my children were very, very young, they would self-select away from a YouTube channel where there was a swear word. Hmm. Um, I don't think any of my children are doing that now, but <laughs> they were very, very young and, and YouTube was much more early in our lives. I was amazed at how they would they would self-select away from things based on the kinds of reprimands that they were aware of in their real environment. Hmm. Um, that would, it, to some degree, inform what they pursued or didn't pursue in their digital environment. And then also recognizing, and, and this is partly from the clinical psychology work that I do, I'm, I have several certifications. One of them is in addiction. You know, shame is an incredibly toxic emotion. It's one that we can point to again and again when we talk about addiction recovery. 
shame is a real barrier to addiction recovery and stigma is a real barrier to addiction and mental health recovery. And so I, I think about that in terms of technology use and, you know, the arguments that many families have around how much time and which platforms and which spaces their children can access with the technology they have. And to your point earlier around, um, you know, being able to articulate to families, you know, the meaning that you have of a, a given relationship or being able to share a certain kind of online interaction that has happened, you know, the degree to which we shame our children's technology use is the same degree that they will bring to our attention the dangers that they're being exposed to. Mm-hmm. So if we don't leave that door open and if we can't take a non-judgmental view of, yeah, the world is messy and people are messy and some people don't have our best interests at heart and and sometimes we will be victims of that and maybe we might even be perpetrators of that. And so how do you keep the channels of communication in real life open for a child and within a family so that you're not stigmatizing and causing shame? in something that is not always controllable experience for a child. You know, I, I hope families and, and those reading this book appreciate that having a non-judgmental attitude it, to our, with ourselves <laughs> as we develop through technology, I think is really important, right? We should demand more. We should appreciate that our government opens these technology doors through its investment decisions. Therefore, it's not really all on the individual user. It's not even on a given platform per se. But um, as regards an individual user, as regards a specific platform, our ability to kind of take a step back, appreciate that bigger picture, and keep the doors open for conversation is really critical. When you started talking about addiction, I couldn't help but think about sort of past experiences I've had where I'm not sh- maybe addiction isn't quite the right word. You know, just like really wanting to be engaged with, say, the, those online environments, those digital experiences, even sometimes to the detriment of what was immediately going on around me. And you mentioned, say, like, you know, iPhones can be sources of attachment and whatnot. There, I think there can be kind of a fixation on the the devices themselves and kind of the things that they're they're mediating and it can be such a strong and rewarding experience that it can be difficult to pull away from it. I remember kind of playing World of Warcraft way too much and stuff like that, which I think isn't a isn't an unusual experience, but I was a little grateful that I went through that phase kind of in high school a little bit because when I was in college, especially my freshman year, I saw people who had never learned to manage their sort of appetites for games or like other kinds of experiences. And so because their parents had sort of, you know, done that for them, by the time they were on their own, that's all they did, right? Like, they're like, oh, okay, I'm finally free to do the thing that I have been wanting to do this whole time. Yeah. It, seem, it seems like there's I don't know. I don't know if like a trade-off is the right word, but, you know, like learning to to manage that in some way, I'm kind of glad, I guess, in a way that I sort of struggled with it and was able to kind of work with my parents through that. Yeah, I, you know, one of the interviews I did for the book was with professor of gaming. I might be misquoting his official title, but he's at Ryerson University, Dr. Christopher Alexander. And he was a fascinating interview. 
he has two esports championships, world championships, two different esports. And he talked about how, it, and he went to college later in life and went through graduate school a little bit later in life as a result of both his esports performance and uh, working, you know, non-academic jobs in order to help support his parents and his family. It's fascinating for lots of different reasons. But to your your comments about sort of that self-regulatory capacity that we develop um, and how hard parents <laughs> battle sometimes to in, to instill it themselves. You know, he talked about how in his family life, yes, to get to a world championship in an e-sport, it does require 14 hours of play a day mm-hmm. for weeks at a time. He made conscious choices to invest in his academics simultaneously, and he would do those 14 hours after, you know, doing other things that were priority, you know, that was communicated by his family and that he had for himself as an expectation. So I, I think that, you know, and I, in the book, I do talk about, about the emotional pull that technology can have, you know, the purpose it can serve of, you know, whether it's World of Warcraft or Facebook scrolling, it, it is rewarding, <laughs> whether I'm beating a level in a game or I'm getting likes on a comment or I'm feeling self-righteous about not believing something that's circulating in my Facebook feed. Those are all little dopamine hits that are rewarding and and strengthening our sense of self and our sense in the world. And that can be far more rewarding than the dishes that need to be washed, in my case, (laughs) in my house, Mm. or, you know, the challenging coursework that's awaiting the corner of your college dorm room, you know, or the laundry pile that might be there. So you know, we're human. It's understandable that we're going to be enticed by immediate rewards to a far greater degree than long-term rewards. I think for individuals kind of navigating that for themselves to just appreciate, like, there's it, there's a reason that pull is hard to resist right now. And getting to sort of what's the emotional core of why it's hard to resist that right now. Is it simply that you're so motivated to beat that level or so invested in, you know, getting your plan to the next, you know, level of achievement in, in a particular game, you know, maybe, or maybe it's the feeling you get when you've helped your group of players get to that level. And what else is happening in your actual non-digital life that is giving you that kind of gratification? And maybe you don't have anything. Um, and so then what might that mean for you? Um, and is that okay, right? Some people do have mostly digital lives, mostly digital relationships, and mostly digital gratification. And I think we have to, especially in our post-pandemic, trying to be post-pandemic existence, we have to acknowledge that people live in a lot of ways. They don't only live in one way. One of my friends that I've known since elementary school has, I think, kind of always had a a kind of digital network of people that have been very close to him because of his interests, you know, say like translating anime and things like that before there were streaming services for that sort of thing. You know, just kind of like building in an environment that you wouldn't even be able to see, but gives someone a lot of meaning within that sort of like digital context. And if you're thinking about something like an esports player, which you talked about, right? Of 
part of the drive towards that is the prestige in the game itself, creating a context in which you can even show off your skill to that degree is kind of amazing. And lots of people want to be streamers these days or, or kind of gamers because they see that and it's a new form of aspiration even. But at the same time, it's like you have this sort of digital thing that you see, right, from someone, the kind of 14-hour days that you put into a game, at least in this point in my life, doesn't, that sounds awful to me, right? But maybe 10 years ago, it would have sounded amazing. Uh, I don't know if it's the the carpal tunnel or the, you know, it doesn't sound like the kind of utopia it sounded like before. Um Especially since I know how long 14 hours actually is. Uh, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I, I think, we, you know, what I learned from writing the book and what I hope readers are taking from reading it is just an appreciation of how, you know, my own little battles and my own, you know, in personal insights or even some degree research insights um, when I really can kind of shake the snow globe and appreciate how connected across time and across industries and across governments, the current moment that we're in ha- has been, um, I'm astounded, right? It, mm-hmm. I just, it, for me, it took so much of the immediate emotional pressure away from a given parenting decision. And I don't say that because I don't think we should have you know, responsibility in a sense of ownership over our parenting. I think I just was able to appreciate that, you know, these shifts in our children's lives are shifts in our social world. And we're not, they're not happening in isolation. There's not much an individual family can do to completely fight them. However, there's a lot that an individual family can do to support themselves and their children through them. And I think recognizing that there are so many families that don't have that capacity just Mm. because of, you know, the economic reality of our world, that that's for me how how the book shifts from here are the developmental touch points that a human might go through and where technology might interface with it to, oh, and here are the social touch points that are happening that we might be able to do something around so that those families that don't have that immediate capacity to engage with their child because of work and childcare and all of that, we could make a a safer online environment for those families. Hmm. And uh, I know we're getting to kind of the end of our time here, but I did just want to mention, I did have a chance to be interviewed for this particular book. So, so thank you so much for for doing that. It was a great experience and I think really interesting to see how it turned out. I guess I've never been reading a book before and then get to the anecdotes and one of them is <laughs> and one of them is something about is me. You? Yeah. Uh, it was kind of yeah, it was kind of an I, interesting experience. It's not even research, right? It's like you talking, it's like a, talking about an experience I had in like junior high. I know and I did you know I did feel a certain way emphasizing <laughs> this junior high experience rather than your adult research <laughs> however for the book narrative it was very useful and I, I think it was um 
really nicely illustrated a point that I needed to be able to make for the research. So um, thank you for sharing it. Yeah, yeah. And I guess just to reveal a little bit of it here, you know, I had an experience where I was so absorbed in my kind of online world that I didn't even notice that my parents had brought some of their friends home. And unfortunately, when you're you're gaming and really into it, uh, sometimes the verbal filter probably isn't as <laughs> as calibrated as it should be. So I, I had quite an embarrassing experience when I realized yeah. it was not just my parents, but also some other people there. But it was an important point, though, and and you know, for the developmental touch point of imaginary audience, right, and how we mm-hmm. go from imagining what people are perceiving of us to internalizing how people perceive us, right? That that's the critical age where that's all unfolding. So it was it was a perfect story to illust- help illustrate that. Yeah, 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 certainly. And I think um, I also really appreciate our conversation in part because it kind of brought me back to thinking about a lot of how I got into doing the research that I'm doing now and the kind of uh, reflection that goes into it of like, oh, like I've I've always been sort of drawn to these topics of, you know, ethical relationships online. What are those supposed to look like in large part because of these, you know, touch points that happened in even in my own life. So, so, so thanks for kind of uh, drawing that out. I think when I initially agreed to the interview, I don't know if I expected it to be so personal, but I think it was, it was really good to go through and to just like kind of ponder and reflect on some of that stuff. And I remember even in the couple of weeks after that, taking some time to do that even further. No, I actually think that's a, you know, I, I made a point of doing that with each of my interviewees of trying to understand what their technology story was. Um, and that's, and at that prompt is how we got to the story that you shared. But, you know, I didn't go into your interview saying, how can I get to imaginary audience, right? I got, <laughs> I got there through asking you what your technology story was. But, you know, I think for readers picking this book up, you know, I hope they'll do that for themselves and really reflect, you know, how was technology introduced in their lives and what meaning did it have and, you know, what world did it open for them? And everyone is going to have their own story and their own perspectives about that. And um, I think that is really informative as to the fears and anticipations that we hold for our own family life when it comes to technology. You know, if we were approached by online predators and didn't have safe adults to talk to in our lives about, you know, in our real non-digital lives about that, probably going to be a lot more cautious mm-hmm. <laughs> with our children's adoption technology. Or we may have a blind spot, right? We may think, oh, well, I was approached by online predators, but I got through just fine. Mm-hmm. And we may not appreciate like, oh, there's a whole like set of discussions we could be having about that, that there's actually a better way of protecting our children than how we might have been able to be protected. But I just, you know, regardless of whether that's someone's experience or not, I just think there's so much that we can learn about ourselves and about how we approach any new technology by thinking about how we experience technology to begin with. Yeah, I think that that's a a great point to kind of wrap up our conversation from. But I do have one last question, which is just about kind of like, like when will the book be available for people to read and and how will people be able to get it? So right now on Roman and Littlefield, it's available for pre-order. And then the official publication date is November 11th of this year. So, um, and you can get it. It's now available for pre-order on any online bookselling platform from your indie bookseller to Amazon. Um, and then directly from Roman and Littlefield as well. 
right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk about the book. I think it's always been been great to kind of see what we get into when we have conversations together. So thank you for taking the time. Yeah, I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much, Seth. Dr. Ray left me thinking about shame. Shame is one of those things that causes us to behave one way when we are by ourselves and another way when we are in front of other people. In other words, it is about how we present ourselves to others. As a kid, we receive this shame from others, whether it be from our parents, our teachers, or our peers. But that shame can become internalized, and we can come to shame ourselves for wanting to game or to do other things. This isn't to say that those things aren't important or that they are behaviors that should be discouraged, but rather that the most important thing is to keep lines of communication open. Perhaps one of the biggest changes in technology is the way in which we no longer gather around devices. Dr. Brady talks about her experience watching TV with other people. But with phones, personal devices that can hold our attention on their own, they can increasingly hold our attention all by themselves. In other words, the framework of the technology is for an isolated experience. How do we maintain communication such that we can continue to talk about the kinds of experiences that we might be having by ourselves? I think a funny part about my experience growing up with technology is that I'm still so excited about it. Part of that is probably due to anxiousness. I'm just not sure of what's going to come next. Humans are just so intelligent and innovative. The kinds of things we've made up are near miraculous. What else might we come up with in the future? But the question of education and of concept for children has always been contentious, not just around phones or other sorts of things. What can kids handle? What can we? It's hard to say, but the truth of our world today is that we are already socially networked together. Whether we like it or not, do you agree that we should characterize our current world as a dystopia? Do you feel fearful or hopeful about the future? What challenges have you faced with your own children? As someone who studies this stuff professionally, there's a lot I can't tell you. But I do know that the kinds of challenges I face in my own life are ones I'm going to continue to ponder, especially as I look to help my family in the future. As always, I would love to hear from you, whether it's by email, digfx at mindingculture.org, or on one of our socials. I hope that we can continue the conversation outside of our time together. Thank you so much for listening. This is Seth, signing off.